Well, turn again this morning, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 and 2 in your hearing. So Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for just the the privilege of gathering together as a people of God. We, We thank you for worship. We thank you for the privilege you give us to sing praises to thee. And I I thank you for the assembly of the saints and the mutual edification that takes place here. And these moments, I would pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit, these moments to convey your your pure holy word in a way that is is honoring to thee and, and really instructive to the hearts and the minds of those that you have been pleased to bring. I, I thank you that you are the sovereign, wise, all-knowing God and would pray that you would enlighten the um, the eyes of our heart to behold true and precious and edifying things from your holy law. So we commit our time to thee and ask for your continued help, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we noted uh, last Lord's Day morning we're embarking on some studies in, in the book of Hebrews, and in terms of how long um, or how far, we'll just kind of see how it goes and continue to, to seek the Lord's mind. But uh, what this particular letter does bring into prominence is our Lord's ministry as a great, glorious high priest. Uh, in chapter 1, the overriding theme can be thought of as the supremacy of the person of Christ. And then a bit more narrowly, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4, that God has spoken in his Son or God's final word, his son. Um, To reiterate the words of Philip Edgecombe Hughes, he writes, the author plunges straight into the exposition of the grand theme, the truth of which he is intent on communicating to his readers, namely the uniqueness and finality of the revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. You might just underscore that in your minds because it's much of what we want to focus on this morning. The uniqueness and finality of the revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. He enlarges and says the opening statement then sets the tone and introduces the main theme of the whole epistle, namely the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ in comparison with the transitory and incomplete character of all that preceded. Now, we notice that the the author brings before our minds two great eras of redemptive history, uh, one referred to as long ago or times past in verse 1, and the other last days in verse 2. And and last days refers to that period of time that commenced with the coming of the person of Christ and will conclude with the return of the person of Christ. So we we are living in the last days. Um, And uh, just since last week, I came across some... um, Remarks by B.F. Westcott, he's an older commentator that I thought was helpful in this concept of last days. He wrote the full phrase in this place, emphasizes two distinct thoughts. Uh, The thought of the coming closed 
of the existing order and also the thought of the contrast between the present and the future order these days as contrasted with those days. So the idea is it involves a sense of anticipation that's associated with the coming of the person of Christ and the complex of events that are centered around the coming of the person of Christ, which could happen at any particular point in time. It fits in with the mindset that's enjoined by our Lord himself in the parable of the ten bridesmaids. He he says, be on the alert. You do not know the day or the hour. Be ready, be on the alert. Now, we, we saw these two great epochs of redemptive revelation. Uh, they're marked by contrast. I won't re- reiterate all these, but they're, they're marked by some contrast, which includes um, the, the recipients of revelation in time past was the fathers, the people of God under that dispensation, whereas the recipients of divine revelation in the last days are us, it's Christian believers, between the first and second coming of the person of Christ. And, and also there's a contrast between the agency of divine revelation. Long ago it was through the prophets, but in the last days it is in his Son. And then these, uh, we notice these two great eras of divine revelation. They're also marked by continuity. Contrast, but continuity. The main point of continuity in both cases, God has spoken. And because God has spoken, it's true. Because God has spoken, it's authoritative. Because God has spoken, it's reliable. We can rely on what he had to say. Now, the propriety or the rightness of the final revelation being in his son resides in the incomparable greatness of the being of his person. The rightness, the appropriateness of the final revelation being in the person of Christ. It's true, but it resides in the incomparable greatness of his person. So in verses 1 through 4, there are several realities or facts, about seven, depending on how you divide them up, that indicate the uniqueness and the excellency of the person of Christ. And and the effect of those will deepen our persuasion of the... Uh, of the rightness of the finality in the person of Christ. So this morning our minds could be occupied with these these two, the first two uh, of these great realities um, about the grandeur and the glory of the person of Christ. Um, the, the first one, the accent will be a bit more on the future, but not limited to that. And then the second one, the emphasis will be on the past, but not limited to that either. So in the first place, I would have you see that he is presented as the possessor of all things. So first main heading, two main headings this morning. First of all, he's the possessor of all things. Now I say possessor because I'm trying to reflect the basic import of the fact that he is the heir of all things. Verse 2 says he is appointed by God. He's appointed by God, heir of all things. Uh, To appoint is to assign a duty, uh, responsibility, or an obligation to someone. God has appointed his son to be heir of all things. The term translated heir occurs several times in the New Testament. Uh, Generally speaking, an heir is a person uh, who is entitled by law or by terms of a will to inherit the estate of another. So it can refer to uh, one who succeeds or to succeed another in the possession of property. So to be an heir is to inherit, especially has regard to having possession or ownership or control of something. So on the basis of God's activity, Christ is presented here as being the possessor or the owner of all things. Um, being an heir is naturally connected with the concept of sonship. He is God's son. One writer says inheritance is the logical extension and fruition of sonship. 
So under, under this first heading, I would offer three factors that, that further our understanding, I hope, in this, uh, this inheritance. And these are factors that distinguish it from the kinds of, of estates and properties and items that men and women inherit in this life, to try to just sort of press the uniqueness of the inheritance on our minds. Uh, number one, it's a universal inheritance. Uh, our text says he is the heir of all things. Now, the, the formulation, whom he has appointed heir of all things, this is a reference to Psalm chapter 2 and, and verse 8. Psalm chapter 2 um, is the reign of the Lord's anointed. H.C. Uh, Leupold, who was a helpful commentator on the book of Psalms, uh, titles Psalm 2, the ultimate victory of the Lord's anointed. Now, in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, at the, at the end of the verse, it says, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Then the very next verse, verse 8, says, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. So verse 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then the very next verse, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Alexander indicates this is the recital of Jehovah's declaration to his son continued. Um, he, he goes on to say that this is a common Old Testament expression. He's referring to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth, a common Old Testament expression for the whole earth, the remotest bounds and all that lies between them. The, the phrase is never applied to a particular country and cannot therefore be explained of Palestine or David's con conquest without violently changing the sublime to the ridiculous. The only subject which can be assumed and carried through without absurdity is the Messiah, who as the son and heir of God had a right to ask for this vast inheritance. O'Brien wrote, Peter O'Brien wrote, this clause alludes to Psalm 2.8, an oracle addressed to the Lord's anointed, who's acclaimed as God's son. He's assured that in response to his request, the sovereign Lord will give him the nations as his inheritance. In Hebrews, the son is invested as the heir, not simply of all the nations, but of the whole universe, of all things. And, and I'll, we'll get to this in a bit, but the, the idea of the universality of the, the inheritance given to the Son corresponds to the university, the universality of creation on the part of the Son also. And we'll, we'll get to that in a few moments. So it's a universal inheritance. Number two, it's an eternal inheritance. F.F. F. Bruce says our author in his mind, the inheritance of the Son is not limited to earth. It embraces the universe and particularly the world to come. And that's the accent on it's a uh, eternal inheritance. It embraces the world to come. And, and we'll see a bit more of that when you get to chapter 2 and verse 9, where it's, it's, it talks about Jesus as the last Adam. He's put all things under his feet. And this idea of the world to come, the inheritance being eternal and including the world to come, it fits in with the content of the promise that is given to Abraham in chapter 11. There we read, by faith Abraham, when he was obeyed, excuse me, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You're aware Abraham was a wealthy man in this world, but his heart was focused on this reality, on the world to come. He lived here as an alien. He was looking for the city whose foundations, excuse me, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
Hebrews 11.13 cites others who embraced the same mindset as Abraham. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Those who say such things make it clear they, they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. So the, the inheritance is an eternal one. It includes the world to come, which consists of the new heavens and the new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. So the inheritance, it's a universal inheritance. It's eternal. And then thirdly, it's a redemptive inheritance. This is really what puts it in the, in the category of the unique. Well, the others do as well, but it's a redemptive inheritance. As Hughes writes, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, the heirship of Christ then is established within the perspective of redemption. His inheritance is the innumerable company of the redeemed. That's the content of the inheritance from the perspective of our Lord. The innumerable company of the redeemed and the universe renewed by virtue of his triumphant work of reconciliation. So I'm persuaded at the heart of the glory of the inheritance for the person of Christ. It is the company of the redeemed. It's those that he shed his blood for. It's those those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. It fits in also with a little further on in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. Speaking of the obedience of our Lord in the midst of great sufferings, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The question is, what does the joy refer to? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think fundamentally it refers to the salvation of his people. John Owen, the Puritan, wrote this joy which was set before him was the glory of God and the salvation of the church, the accomplishment of all the counsels of divine wisdom and grace unto the eternal glory of God, was set before him. So was the salvation of all the elect. These were the two things that the mind of Christ valued above life, honor, reputation, all that was dear unto him. So the cross of Christ was a a redemptive event. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the content of the substance of this inheritance included the company, therefore, of the redeemed. He purchased them with his own blood. Now, the implication of that for you and I is that that we are co-heirs with the person of Christ. In Galatians 4, 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, Galatians 4, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Christ redeemed us by his blood so that we would be adopted as sons and cry out, Abba, Father, but also that we would be co-heirs by means of incorporation into his body. And the the verification that that you and I are co-heirs with Christ is if we're willing to suffer for him in this world. That's how we know that we are co-heirs with Christ. If there's a willingness on our part, he suffered for us. So is there a willingness in our part and in our heart to suffer with him? Romans 8.16, for him. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we 
may also be glorified with him. So a first aspect or a first reality of our Lord's character, he is the possessor of all things. The possessor of all things. And secondly, um, he has the power to create all things. This is what elevates our appreciation of his, of his greatness in the final revelation residing in him. He has the power to create all things. And here the accent is not so much on the future, it's on the past with ongoing implications. And the text puts it like this, through whom he made the world. Uh, the Greek term here, it's not... Um, cosmos or cosmos which is used many times in the new testament and translated world rather this is my best stab at the transliteration it's i own it basically means ages so as such it's translated forever in john 8 35 or age in ephesians 121 eternal in first timothy 117 ff bruce commented he says it was through him that god made the worlds the greek um, world, the Greek world rendered worlds is ion, which primarily means ages, but its meaning cannot be restricted to ages. Uh, the whole created universe of time and space is meant. The whole created universe of time and space. I want to develop our thinking under the second heading by means of three observations. Uh, the first one is, is pretty short. <clears throat> Observation number one, God is presented as creator through the agency of the sun. God is presented as the creator through the agency of the Son, through whom, a reference to Christ, through whom also he made the world. Observation number two, agency in creation does not infer inferiority on the part of the Son. Being the agent of creation doesn't imply inferiority on the part of the Son. That God created the world through Christ does not imply any kind of intrinsic deficiency on the part of the Son. Conversely, uh, creating in the world is a prerogative of deity, a prerogative of being God. The ability to create the world is a quality of being God. Christ as the second person of the Holy Trinity is clearly overtly presented as the creator of the world in the same sense that God the Father is. A couple of texts that already might be in your mind in, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, the Word that was with God. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. This is the same Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The Word that was with God, and the Word that was God. And by the exercise of his power, all things came into being. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Uh, a second set of verses would be Colossians 1.16 and following. For by him, referring to Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or in him all things consist. So we're told here, he created all things in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, and, and by him all things hold together. So the idea, he is the principle of cohesion in the universe. So that, as some have put it, the, the universe is a is, co, is, is a, um, 
It's not chaotic, put it that way. The power to create and sustain the world, it's a prerogative of deity. Only God can create the world. So this, it validates his divine nature. Only God can create the world. In Isaiah 36, 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone of all the kingdoms of, of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Only God can make the heaven and the earth. Jeremiah 10 and verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding has stretched out the heavens. So the one who makes the world is the true God, the living God, the everlasting God. He has the unique power and wisdom and understanding to accomplish this. All those attendant qualities are appropriately applied to our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, as the creator. <clears throat> Philip Hughes makes reference to... Um, Athanasius, he was a, one of the church fathers who wrote, when the sacred writers say he is before all ages and that through him he created all the world, they proclaim the eternal and everlasting being of the Son and thereby designate him as God. Uh, uh, he, I'm going to quote from Hughes here, and he uses the word um, consubstantiality. That's the word for the day, Okay consubstantiality seven i think seven syllables okay and it's really a cool word because it means it draws our attention to the sameness of essence between the father and the and the, and the son they are of the same substance that's the meaning of the term he says in the light of this teaching it is not surprising that the title son itself implies consubstantiality of christ with the father as one observes, Hebrews understands Son of God to mean complete participation in the Father's deity. For this reason, our author does not hesitate to apply to the Son the words addressed to the Lord, the eternal sovereign creator of all things in Psalm 102. <clears throat> Psalm 102 verse um, 25 says, Thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. That is applied to the Son of God in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. And we could add here that, that being an agent of creation does not only not imply inferiority of person, but this is it's a testimony to the infinite superiority of the person of Christ, the intrinsic excellency of Christ over all the prophets and any other human messenger. The son's superiority, one road to all previous messengers, is here seen in his pre-existence, his role in creation, and ultimately his divinity. So it draws our attention to his superiority, number one, also to his dignity. It's a testimony to his unique dignity, Robert Martin wrote. But here, the writer refers to the eternal dignity which the son possessed as God's agent of creation. So it draws attention to his superiority, his dignity, and also his priority over all others, the implication of this doctrine here and elsewhere is the priority of Christ to the whole created order and therefore his preexistence and coexistence with the Father. Now, then number three under this second heading is this. Um, because Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things in the same sense and to the same extent as God the Father. It means the same benefits derived from God the Father as creator are also derived from God the Son as creator. 
Let me run that by you one more time. Because Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things in the same sense and to the same extent that God the Father is, it means that, that all of the benefits derived from God the Father as creator are also derived from God the Son as creator. Now, you're probably asking the question, if you're not, let me encourage you to ask the question, at least think about the question, well, what are the benefits from God that we are assured of as creator and sustainer of the world? What, what benefits are uniquely connected with the fact that God himself is the creator and the sustainer of the world? Well, how about help, blessing, hope, and confidence in prayer? Those are four benefits that are directly connected with the fact that God is the creator of the world. He, create, he created and sustains the world and assures us that he is the source of our help in time of need. Psalm 124.8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121.1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, which is easy to do in this part of the country. From whence shall come my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. So we're assured that our Lord, who made and sustains the totality of the universe, he can help us in time of need. Second is, is a blessing. There's help. There's also a blessing that comes from the one who has the power to create the worlds. And this is especially as opposed to idols and idolatry, those who believe in idols. Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but... To thy name give glory, because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. It's like a statue. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. In contrast to that, verse 15 says, May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So blessedness is, is connected with his power as creator. And then hope, our assurance of receiving real, true, soul-sustaining hope. It's intensified because it's rooted in the character and the power of one who has such grandiose power in this world. Psalm 31:24 says, Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. And then Psalm 146, 5 helps us to apply that. How blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Well, then fourthly, connected with this prerogative of deity, creating the heavens and the earth, sustaining them, is confidence in prayer. One of the greatest incentives to pray, we pray all the time. That's what we're, we're, we're Christians and we pray. And we pray because God hears prayer. We, we know that he hears prayer. We know that he listens. We know that, he, we know that he pays attention. But it would be an exercise in futility if we didn't believe he had the power to respond to our prayers. And, and, and the fact that he created the world deepens in our soul the conviction that he has the power to respond to our prayers. Um, Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings of the, of the southern kingdom. And under the imminent threat of Assyrian invasion, he prays. It says, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. 
he went up to the house of the Lord and, and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. So at the beginning of his prayer, it's like he just wants to make this really clear. You are the creator. You are the, let's be clear about that. You're the creator of the ends of the earth. And then he launches into this prayer and he says, Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Shanachrim, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they've destroyed them. And now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. There's, there's a boldness to this prayer. You should act because you can. You should act for your glory. You should act because you are the mighty God who creates the heavens and the earth. So God's final revelation in these last days, it is, it's, it's through his son. And the rightness of that and the propriety of that, at least to our minds, is, is the glorious excellency of his person. And the first two realities that bring that to our minds are, number one, he is the possessor of all things, and number two, he is the, has the power to create all things. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you this morning for the glory of your son, the reality of your son, the power of your son, the excellency of your son. We thank you that he is the radiance of your glory. We thank you that he's the exact representation of your person. And we thank you for these precious realities. And I pray even now you might be pleased to take your word, your precious word, your pure word, and apply it to our, our souls and our hearts for your honor and for your glory and for our own good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.